Support for this episode of Science Moab comes from the Colorado Plateau Foundation, a Native-led philanthropic institution supporting Native-led organizations, protecting water, sacred places, and endangered landscapes, preserving Native languages, and uplifting sustainable community-based agriculture. Since 2012, the Colorado Plateau Foundation has awarded $2.8 million to over 100 Native-led initiatives across the Colorado Plateau. More information is available at coloradoplateaufoundation.org. This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina Young, and today we're talking with Nikki Cooley about climate change and how tribal communities are working on their own terms and with their own knowledge systems to address and create resiliency to climate change. I am of the Tarn House clan. I born for the Reed people clan. My maternal grandparents are from the water that flows together clan. Paternal grandparents are from the many goats clan. I am originally from uh shanto and blue gap arizona and that is how i always introduce myself as a navajo woman and uh that's how i speak navajo i currently live in flagstaff arizona and i work as the co-manager of the institute for tribal environmental professionals itep specifically their tribes and climate change program and I'm also the interim assistant director for ITEP. Recently, I introduced myself to a group of scientists, researchers, physicians, and it was very, very um, sterile, no, no pun intended, because it was very formal and I felt uncomfortable. And I, I'm telling you this because Part of my introduction, I did say I, I've been working on climate change since I was growing up on the Navajo Nation. And it was very different from everyone else. And I mean, that in, in a nutshell describes who I am because I did grow up on the Navajo Reservation, the Navajo Nation, uh, with my grandparents, maternal and paternal. And they taught me the Navajo language. I really was outdoors all the time, herding sheep, riding horses, walking, they call it hiking now, but I walked around all over and often with my grandparents through the cornfields and they really taught me a lot about taking care of Mother Earth. And they always said, always take care of your mother. And that, so it's been in, ingrained in me since before I was born, and and in the Navajo way, you know, you take you you take care of your elders, and that includes the earth, the waters, Father Sky, and our non-human relatives. So that that it's it was already ingrained in me. So I do have a undergraduate and a master's degree. Well, should I say bachelor's and master's degree in forestry? 
from Northern Arizona University. And I was also a wildland firefighter for one year. And then I found my dream job, which is where I'm at. Um, I work as the co-manager of the Tribes and Climate Change Program. And I'm really proud of that because I get to combine all of my interests, my passions, and I feel like I'm, I'm making a difference. I'm wondering, you know, now looking around and what kind of impacts of, of climate change, can, can you see those now on the Navajo Nation and what does that look like? I like to tell this story about my grandfather as we used to walk through, you know, our lands and he would teach me about plants and talk to me about how water was the new gold or it was going to be the new gold. So he would tell me water is the new gold and that I would someday I would have to prepare myself um, immensely to really fight on behalf of of the earth and uh, alongside a lot of other people who were who were and are going to be doing the same same thing and you know being that being that intimate with the environment that i grew up in was growing up in i was very conscious of what existed what wasn't available uh what was available so for example herding sheep and goats I'm bragging here, but 50 mile round trips, um, maybe a little bit less or a little bit more in some days. So we wouldn't overgraze, we would find new pastures for them to feed and water. And there was always water available where I could, I could name water sources and I would direct them there. And as I grew into my high school years, I found that they were decreasing and now they're non-existent and some of our wells are drying up or we call them windmills out there on the reservation we have these water sources where there's huge windmills and a lot of them are drying up or the waters are contaminated so that's a big difference right there about the water availability and you can also see the difference in the soil composition is not strong anymore due to the lack of precipitation, but also just overgrazing by sheep, goats, cattle, and the plants don't grow that much anymore. You know, we used to have rice grass all over. We used to have sage used to just bloom. And now it, it, it's half of maybe not even half of what it used to be. So I noticed these very much and it's very disturbing. I am 41 years old and that shouldn't be that shouldn't be the age where I'm seeing these drastic differences and I should be seeing what I saw when I was younger. So and I driving around the reservation or through the reservation I I do see the changes and I feel it too. I don't just see it, I feel it. And our people have had to reduce their number of livestock whether um, it's cattle or goats or horses and they've had to sell them off because they can't afford to feed them water them our cornfield has been smaller and smaller each year when i say our it's mostly my mother's and we help her plant and they don't grow as they used to we also use the dry farming method and the, the soil's not strong there's not enough water and we hand water because we don't have a faucet 
what we can turn water on. So yes, um, as a 41-year-old Navajo woman, I noticed drastic differences and we've been calling it climate change for a long time in our own language. From what I understand, like part of the work that you're doing for the Institute for Tribal Environmental Professionals. And so I'd love to hear about what that what that work is and, and how climate adaptation planning for tribal communities is, is a part of that. I am so fortunate to work with tribes and indigenous nations across the country. I've traveled to Alaska, Prescott Isle, Maine, Choctaw, Mississippi, you know, uh, La Jolla, California, you know, North Carolina, all these uh, places that hold really rich history of the native people there. And in my travels, you know, I bring my expertise, I bring the tools and services that ITEP offers to tribes to promote, encourage climate change adaptation and now mitigation planning. And I've heard stories of, about the struggles, about the resilience and the successes of the people. And it really goes to show again that as Native people, we are adaptive. We know how to adapt and we provide these trainings on climate change adaptation planning. And you know, tribes know what climate change is, but the, to communicate it in their own language in their own way of doing is really important. There's a lot of young people and older people who don't understand how to translate the Western idea of what climate change adaptation planning is. And so to bring those two knowledge bases together is kind of one of our specialties. And oh gosh, I'm so fortunate. I've heard stories from relatives in Alaska who have said, you know, we don't hear the ice crashing anymore and it's really affecting our ability to function because that was uh, the ice crashing in the river and so when they would sleep um, somebody said it was like a lullaby for them to sleep and with the lack of the that sound and the present then the lack of the presence of ice um, is having a big effect on their mental and spiritual health and I hear stories like that and I'm tell tell them you're not alone you know we don't hear we don't we don't hear um certain things down here on the Navajo reservation too we don't have the presence of coyotes or bobcats like we used to um you know even though they're predators but they're still a part of the the, the web of life you know you mentioned that the Navajo nation just passed their adaptation plan I was wondering if you could just give some examples from the region about what that really looks like. Basically an adaptation plan goes through like five steps. And the first one is really to scope out who's going to be involved in the planning, meaning what kind of topics on tribal lands are priority. So for example, the Navajo Nation, their priority topics, there's probably like 10 of them seven or ten of them but there's water feral horses and also communication i'm gonna give those three examples lack of communication those three topics they all decided that that those three topics were to be of priority to be addressed for the whole nation after getting funding community support leadership approval but also the the man and woman power to push those actions through 
and then like the that part of the plan is also to like monitor you know how it's going like basically like a research project you want to monitor and evaluate your results so for example again i'm gonna it's easy this is a really easy example so i'm gonna go to the swinomish tribe again they're they're restoring these traditional clam gardens which have been eroded by development but also the high tides that are coming in and no one taking care of them basically so they've kind of washed away and the clams have not had any stability to maintain their habitat and they use these clams specifically for foods uh ceremonial purposes and so but also just to live in harmony with the environment so the swinomish tribe is rebuilding these clam gardens using traditional methods and that's a priority topic for them because it's very without it they lose a piece of themselves is what they say as we know you know a lot of this information the science in in, in the western science canon is only like one form of knowledge you know there's incredible traditional knowledge held within all of these tribal communities and so would love to hear more if you have it about the role or how you like to think about and talk about traditional knowledge and its role in climate change mitigation and adaptation. Christina, thank you for the opportunity to talk a little bit more about this because as you can tell, it's a passion of mine to continue to talk about this in order for anyone who is a scientist, that includes indigenous scientists, like my grandmother is a scientist herself. I'm a scientist you know, on the Western side with my degrees, but also growing up, you know, I did my own monitoring, I did my own data gathering, my own observations. So it's important to understand that Native people, tribal people have the knowledge, they know what science is, it's just communicated in a different way than the Western non-Indigenous, non-tribal way of doing science it's important to distinguish the two because they come from two very different foundations, right? For example, you know, growing up uh, in forestry school, we revere Aldo Leopold and Gifford Pinchot. Oh my God. Um, James Mooney, all these, all these folks that are men, white men, but we don't talk too much or we didn't talk too much about the significance of the efforts of Native Americans, the tribal people who were already here on this continent and were already taking care and managing the environment. And we suppressed those efforts and we're facing those consequences right now, even though tribal people were telling BIA, US Forest Service, that this is this you should we should be burning every year as we've been doing for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so traditional knowledge really refers to how the native people, tribal people, the intergenerational teachings hand it down for millennia. And it's my grandfather showing me the different plants, what they're used for medicinally, for food, and how to grow them, and how to not over harvest that's science right there. But this is the same knowledge that's been passed down, you know, adapted here and there through different generations. It's been a very reliable system of knowledge and it's been stayed, it's, it has stayed consistent. And it's, yeah, so it, it's all in the language too. Traditional knowledge is 
is how you speak about the earth, the wildlife, the water, and whatnot. It it's almost describes a relationship that is reciprocal rather than one being superior over the other. What when in fact, you know, nature is superior over humans not in the Western way of thinking. And so that it's a big part of our work. And I wanna mention that these climate change adaptation plans, we really promote and encourage them to write it in their own language, their tribal language and include without including sensitive information, but also including traditional knowledges. They're so amazing, you know, so it's, it's, it's very evident in these plans that people need to include traditional knowledges and there's a lot of non-researchers who still don't understand it or try to understand it and and that's also part of my job is to encourage people tribal nations who are working with universities or any academic institution NGOs consultants to really say traditional knowledges have to be incorporated because it's who we are it is the identity of our people and without it um, it's just another research paper. I hear from a lot of people that they feel overwhelmed and depressed when you know if you say the word climate change they kind of close down and so I'm just wondering how you move forward with your work and and how you keep from closing down with what you know can at times feel like an immense challenge. One of my Navajo names growing up was Asabahojona, which means the woman who's always happy. And like a lot of Navajo kids, we have several names and we're often not called by the name that's on our birth certificate. So we have a lot of names and that was one of the names that was given to me by my grandfather. And he still calls me that. And he always says, your dad is always grumpy, but you always had a smile on your face, teasing my dad who was always grumpy, but also very much full of life. Yeah, I, I always wondered why. And I'm like, I guess I was happy, but it didn't really strike me. I didn't fully understand it until I threw myself fully into the work of climate change. I don't think it's brushing it under the rug, but rather I'm learning how to deal with it, where I just turn on my happy switch and it's very easy for me because I look to Chief Shirell, I look to Anne-Marie Chishchilly, I look to all the tribes all over the nation that remain resilient. You know, Nikki, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Media is by Sophia Fisher. Newsletter is by Rhonda Cook. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.